1: Hello and welcome to a slightly new format for the edition podcast. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the magazine, as per usual, but trying to give some insight into the thought process behind putting The Spectator to bed each week. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
2: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: Well, so it's Wednesday afternoon. We went to press earlier today at one30 our cover line this week is "Work Fast." Kate Andrews and Max Jeffrey on the new jobs crisis. So, well, why don't we start by casting our minds back to Monday when we decided this cover? How how did we come up with it?
2: Well, I think the 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 amount of people in this country who are on out of work benefits is something which our editor Fraser Nelson, I think, I would think it's fair to say, it's a topic which exercises him uh, rather a lot, and I don't think it takes much of a push to get him to want to write about it or have it written about uh, in the pages of The Spectator. And you know, with the budget coming up and everything, it seems like people are starting to ask questions about why this country is in a recession, what's caused that. And um, it's the sort of elephant in the room, I think, which a lot of politicians don't want to address. Labour don't want to address it because they've got no answer for it. Tories don't know what to do about it. So um, it is not really being talked about as it should. So here we are to Talk about it. There's there's one thing that I would love to point out because it's just one of those little funny quirks, which is that Kate and Max, who have written these pieces for the magazine, they've actually shared a cover line once before in the history of the Spectator. And by an odd twist of fate, or perhaps symbolic of our lack of ideas when it comes to coming up with headlines, <laughs> the last time the last time they shared a, a, the cover of the Spectator had the headline "Border Fast. So they've had this week work fast They did have border fast about two years ago. So we're just going to have to keep coming up with with, <laughs> with fast farce, farce headlines, I think, fast puns to keep uh, keep this And um, Max obviously going. actually
1: was on the cover last week. He, so he's now back from Estonia, this, and on Monday he was dispatched to Blackpool. And I think his piece does a very good job of, of examining the problem in lots of places around Britain, which is that people just... There isn't much incentive to work, because even if you do work, you, you lose lots of benefits, and it just... It just doesn't seem, the whole system itself doesn't seem to be working. So I think the combination of the two pieces work very well together as, to describe what exactly is going on right now. So we spoke to Kate Andrews and Paul Nowak, the General Secretary of the Trade Union Congress, earlier Kate, the economy went into recession at the end of last year but there seems to be disagreement over why exactly. What do you think is going on and and, and what's the
3: government blaming and, and what do you think is the main reason? Well the government likes to point the finger at higher interest rates which is a tool that the Bank of England is in charge of and there's certainly some truth to that. Higher interest rates are designed to take heat out of the economy. We did that to bring inflation down. Pretty necessary given that inflation was in double digits but Understandably, Politicians who don't have control over that lever like to say, it wasn't me that pulled it. Then the Bank of England looks at external factors like Russia's war against Ukraine. They look at COVID. They look at the pandemic and lockdowns. And they say these external factors have obviously put a, a huge weight on economic growth. But there's another factor which was brought out by the Office for National Statistics last week when it was announced that the UK was had entered into a shallow recession last year. And that was worklessness. And I found that particularly interesting, not because I think it is the only reason that the UK went into recession, but because it is a piece of the puzzle that many people don't like to talk about. And one of the reasons they don't like to talk about is because it's a tragic story. And it's also one that politicians don't have great answers to. Um, And what the cover piece looks at is how the disincentives baked into the benefit system, baked into the tax code, across the income spectrum really, are giving people reasons not to work. And this has become especially bad since we've left the pandemic. The number of people on long-term sickness who are out of work uh, continues to skyrocket after COVID, after lockdowns. The number of people on out-of-work benefits is now approaching 5.6 million. This is not Uh, far off the record highs that we've seen in the past this is a waste of human potential it's also really bad news for all of us uh, and for the UK economy because it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where we can really recover without getting more people into work.
2: Paul I would love to know what the TUC's view on the recession is what are you hearing from workers and do do you agree with Kate's analysis that people aren't working and why they're not working?
4: Well, I think there's part of Kate's analysis that, that I'd agree with, but I, I think I'd have to widen things out. So just in terms of where we are with the economy, I mean, I think we've got an economy that is, is bumbling along at best. A government really that's got no, no clear plan for, for growth. And if you, if you think about the millions of people that we represent, we've had a cost of living crisis, which for, for many of those workers is effectively a wages crisis. I mean, real wages are lower now than they were in 2008. I mean, that's unprecedented in our, in our economic history. Lots of reasons for that. And, and Kate's talked about, you know, for example, uh, the war in Ukraine, the economy recovering uh, from the pandemic. But there are some long-run problems in the UK economy. I mean, if you look at productivity, we're less productive than the US, but we're also less productive than France. Germany, with its well-publicised issues and problems at the moment, still 16% more productive uh, than the UK economy. Perhaps no coincidence that you know business investment in the UK is lower than any other G7 country when it comes to things like investments in skills, we're at half the EU average. So some big long-run problems in the UK economy. On the issue of worklessness, it is absolutely true that there are more and more people who are now not at work because of ill health, and in particular, uh, mental ill health. But you've got to look at the, the, the reasons for that, and, and hopefully we can get into the conversation, Will, about What's driving that? But I have to say, you know, if you look at the state of our public services, if you look at the state of the world of work, I'm not surprised that we've got more people not in work because of ill health.
2: Do you think it is a failure of public services that's, that's driving this, uh, this worklessness then? Is that, is that your conclusion?
4: Uh, well, if you look at our, our public services, it's certainly one element. I mean, we've got 300,000 staff vacancies in the NHS at the moment. We've got 1.2 million people on waiting lists for mental health issues uh, just short of three million people who are on long term sick, who could be in work, and and we know that one of the the, the re- real drivers for those certainly over fifty is not being in work is because they're, they're stuck on waiting lists. So there's definitely a problem in our NHS. I'd say beyond the NHS, actually, uh, if you look at local councils, their budgets have been slashed, and that's where a lot of the preventative work would have been done to stop people being ill in, in the first place. But it's not the only reason. I mean. If I think about the experience of work for many of our members, and it doesn't matter whether you're flying a plane, uh, working in a classroom or working in a warehouse, we have members talking to us about work intensification, about ever increasing workloads. Uh, We know that heavy workloads actually drive around about two thirds of stress related absence uh, from work. We've got a problem with the way we do work uh, in the UK. And I think we've got to think long and hard about how we improve the quality of work, the experience of work. Uh, as well as how we support people into employment.
1: Kate, one of the points that you make in your piece is that it's not just at the kind of lower end of the economic scale that people are being in- disincentivised from working, but you say it's sort of across the entire system, really. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because as well as your piece, we also have Max Jeffrey writing from Blackpool, and he talks um, movingly about what's going on there. But but you 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 say it's a bigger problem, really.
3: Yeah, I think so. If you look at the tax code and particularly some of the changes that have been made in the past few years, this has created a disincentive for people to work across the income spectrum. So the decision to freeze tax thresholds uh, has led to fiscal drag, which is a stealth tax where people get pulled into paying tax, they get pulled into paying the higher rate of tax, uh, and uh, it really creates a disincentive to work. And it's terrible to report that some of the people who are going to be most badly affected by fiscal drag are at the bottom end of the income spectrum and in the piece I note that income tax for a cleaner working 35 hours a week on the minimum wage is going to be 50 almost 50 percent higher due to fiscal drag I mean that's that's unforgivable that is absolutely atrocious but if we look at people who are doing extremely well towards the top of the income spectrum we also have some very strange incentives I mean they're they're disincentives so if you and your partner tip over 100,000 pounds of income tip over the edge of that. Um, you're going to lose all of the free, I say that with quotes, extended childcare that Jeremy Hunt announced. And that frankly is a, a very strange incentive. If, if you want to be encouraging women to be having more children, but also be, to be staying in the workforce, why is there no taper there? So you have reasons that people at, across the income spectrum are actually thinking, no, I'll, I'll work fewer hours. I won't take the promotion. And to, to Paul's point, it may not be worth the stress. It may not be worth the effort that I have to put in. If ultimately I'm not going to be keeping as much income as I think it's worth. So I I think we have some real problems there. Also, quickly to, to Paul's point about sickness, I think it's such an important one, something that we, we look in the, we look at in the magazine this week, is how our systems, health and welfare, are just not set up for mental health issues. And this exploded during the pandemic for good reason. Um, we discovered that a lot of people had mental health issues in lockdown. Lockdown created a lot of mental health issues. And the NHS has never been set up for this. I mean, I think Paul and I would probably disagree on how much budget is a, is a factor here, given that the nhs and in, in real terms has more money going into it than ever but that money is not getting to the front line it's not getting to the people who need it
4: yeah i i, I would disagree on the funding point kate you're absolutely right but 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 just to say i i mean i say i don't think it's just about funding for the nhs i think it's it's about funding for, for local council preventative services as well which we know have been uh, slashed but But it's also treating the causes, the reasons, the underlying causes of that stress. And you know, there are real issues. I think, as I said before, about work intensification. Can I just pick up this point about disincentives, though? Because disincentives and incentives. Give you a practical example. If you're working in social care, we know large parts of social care where we've got something like I don't know 150,000 staff vacancies in social care. The minimum wage is the default wage. One in four people is working on a zero hours contract. I mean, it's very hard to plan any sort of life, to go to work with any certainty, not knowing exactly how many hours you're going to be working. Uh, And you can see why people are are, are not taking up some of those opportunities in social care because they literally can't afford to. They, 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 they They don't want to work in such a precarious situation where their family's incomes might be infected. I would say, actually, we've got these perverse incentives in the UK for employers. I mean, we've got employers, some of the big household name employers, who we as taxpayers are subsidising each and every single one of the people that they're employed. In social care, but think about distribution centres. I won't name the companies, but some of those big distribution centres. Uh, everybody working in those uh, centres is likely claiming universal credit, in-work tax benefits uh, and credit. And I have to think about why are we as tax- taxpayers subsidising companies to keep people on low paid, in low-paid employment, At the same time, those companies are incredibly profitable. So I think when we're talking about incentives and disincentives, we've got to wean employers off low-paid, insecure employment as well. I mean, it's not good for our members, but I would argue actually it's not good for the UK economy to have this long tail, which we've got in the UK, of low-paid, insecure employment that people can't build lives on, but that we as taxpayers are subsidizing each and every day. I mean, that seems a bizarre incentive from my perspective.
0: Hmm.
3: So I'd be interested in in Paul's thoughts on um, this because one of the things we look at in the cover piece this week is just how many job vacancies there are in the UK right now over nine hundred thousand and even with record levels of net migration seven hundred forty five thousand net migrants in twenty twenty two employers are really struggling to fill these jobs, and you know I, I I take Paul's point about what are the incentives to get into work what kind of situation am I going to have am I going to want to wake up every day and feel passionate and. Feel feel like I'm being valued at that job. That's a really important one for employers to tackle. But I would also say that If you feel underemployed, if you don't like the work you're doing, if you don't think you're being fairly compensated, this is the time to be an employee who wants to change jobs because there are 900,000 vacancies. There are employers right now who will desperately want to hire you, who will be looking to train you and skill you up because they cannot find workers. Wages have been falling behind inflation for years. No one's going to sit here and pretend that The average worker is really better off now than than they were, say, four or five years ago. But recently, we have seen wages outpacing inflation. If you want that higher salary, if you want a new opportunity, the jobs are there. The vacancies are there. Now is a good time to go look for those jobs. And, And one of my deep worries is the fact that the trajectory after COVID should have been people going back into work, filling those jobs. Instead, what we're seeing after lockdowns after the mandate to stay home, is a surge in people on out-of-work benefits, is a surge in people taking long-term sick. And and the long-term sick, a lot of that is explained by the NHS wait list, right? They can't see their GP, an absolute scandal. But if you want to be working right now, there is a strong argument for many people that those jobs are there. And I'm curious as to what Paul hears from from those that he represents, because I'm sure there are reasons that people are sitting around thinking, well, the system is stacked against me, the tax system, all of it is not working working for me. But those jobs are there. The question is, yeah. why are employers struggling to fill, fill those vacancies?
4: I, I think there's all sorts of reasons, Kate, but let me give you some sort of um, practical issues. I think for, for for many workers, the choice is leaving one low-paid, uh, low insecure job to move to another low-paid, insecure job. And we've seen lots of movement backwards and forwards between, for example, social care and retail. I actually think what we need as a country is a plan to to drive up standards in, in those, those low paying sectors of the economy. So when we talk about industrial strategy, often people are talking about automotive or chemicals or aerospace. We actually need a plan to drive up employment standards in social care, in our supermarkets, in parts of the hospitality industry. So you know, creating more better quality jobs, but also making sure the jobs that people are doing have the opportunities for career progression to actually build a life on them. I think it's not just, um, uh, there's a real issue, I think, about support for people to make those transitions. The transition from unemployment into work and the transition between jobs. Any careers advice and guidance we've got in this country is exclusively focused on those leaving school or university or college. There's very little support for people to think about uh, switching careers in your mid 20s or mid 30s. Where do I go to get retraining, reskilling? Where's the financial support for me to be able to, uh, you know, sort of invest in my education? Job centres and Labour have come out with something around job centres and how you could turn them into skills hubs today. But job centres—I mean, the staff in job centres who we represent—have ten minutes to talk to people about their job, you know, to talk about you know their experience of trying to find work. I mean, what support advice? can you give people it in 10 minutes, particularly if somebody is making that very difficult transition from not working back into employment. So I would like to see, for example, our job centres being turned into one-stop shops for careers advice and guidance, for access to skills, for people to have individual learning accounts and a, and a right to, to retrain. I mean, I, I just think it, if this isn't going to happen by accident, we've got to find ways, as I say, supporting people from no work into work and then into into better quality employment. And, you know, actually the experience of any job is better than no job for many of our members just doesn't hold true. And funnily enough, actually, Theresa May, when she was Prime Minister, I think when she commissioned Matthew Taylor to do his work of modern employment practices, identified this as an issue. Too many people trapped, trapped in low-paid employment. Um, so, so, I mean, there are solutions to that. We've talked, it's part of Labour's, New Deal commitments for a fair pay agreement, for example, in social care, where employers, unions, care providers will be tasked with thinking about not only wages in social care, but career progression, how you give people the skills that they need, parity of esteem with those working in the NHS. I mean, that's a sector where, bizarrely, uh, we've got 150,000 vacancies, but the minimum wage is still the default wage. And, and frankly, the government, I mean, this week, the government's big flagship announcement from James Cleverly that it was going to make it harder for, for, for people to travel to the UK to work in social care. It's not going to fix the problem. Now Come and work for the minimum wage on a zero-hours contract. And by the way, don't bring your family with you. is hardly uh, a, a, an incentive to people to come and work in the UK social care system.
2: Kate and Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Laura, what other features did you enjoy from the magazine this week?
1: Well, there's there's one in the front of the book that I particularly like, which is Mark Mason writing about Test cricket being the best antidepressant at this time of year. He's talking about how when the England cricket team flies east in the winter, it offers a chance for cricket fans to, to watch the sport, during, often during the night or the early hours of the morning, which he says is, is actually the best tonic to cold January and February mornings. And I actually remember when, when when our first child was born. I think it coincided with England being. I think they were playing Pakistan in a test match, um, and it was just. It always seemed to be between the hours of three a.m. and seven a.m. that my husband was actually really happy to take take the baby and plonk, plonk her in front so of you the were cricket. Very grateful so I was cricket, grateful as well. And I think Mark's Mark's quite right. And then the other thing I'd like to mention is. is just, Lim Barber reviewing this new biography of Keir Starmer by Tom Baldwin. And she's she's quite enamoured by the prospect of Keir Starmer. She mm. says the only thing that she finds off-putting is his passion for football. And she finds it reassuring that Rachel Reeves doesn't like
2: football. Well, speaking of Keir Starmer, actually, there's um, a piece I love in the magazine, which is the diary... By Anne Robinson. I know last week I also mentioned the diary was, was one of my favorite things in the magazine, but the diary often is brilliant. And Anne Robinson here is no exception because she's got this fantastic waspish sense of humor. And she has this fun, there's so many good bits in her diary actually, but there's a really good item on Keir Starmer. I don't think I'm going to spoil it for, for so I really want them to see them for themselves, but it has such a great opening line, which is, I have a reoccurring fantasy that Sir Keir Starmer has won me in a raffle for the morning. And it goes from there. So if you want to find out what uh, Anne Robinson's Keir Starmer fantasy is, then I encourage, encourage <laughs> you to have a read. Uh, but in terms of what else I enjoyed, I'd actually would love to, to draw attention to a poem today, because every week regular readers will know that we have many wonderful poems that sort of uh, pepper the pages often alongside longer articles and there's a I a really funny poem that went alongside Kate's cover piece this week so we're going to have a listen to it now uh, read by The Spectator's deputy features editor Gus Carter.
0: Punch and Judy revisited for Anna by John Mole. Punch has made up with Judy and put his big stick away. He's happy to cuddle the baby. He's a new man as from today. A husband on best behaviour, a loving father restored. But preferring him as a raver, the audience feels cheated and bored. Bring back the judge and the gallows, the chorus of children cries. We want to be chilled to our marrows. Bring back the shock and surprise. But Anna approves of these changes, as she sits there nodding her head. This is so much more like it, she says. No one wicked or punished or dead.
2: The second feature that we're going to talk about in a little bit more length is the Arts Lead, which is written by Calvin Poe, in which he asked the question, will a new Labour government give architects the power to reshape housing? And to talk about the piece further, we spoke to Liam Halligan, the Telegraph columnist and author of Home Truths. I started by asking him how Britain's chronic housing shortage came to be in such a dire state.
5: Well, I must say, it's nice to see the uh, Spectator Arts edition going big on policy conundrums. It just shows the quality of the magazine, doesn't it? We'll have Katie Balls writing about theatre next. (laughs) It's good to see. Look, Labour have really made housing one of their big offers. That was clear at the party conference this autumn. Keir Starmer saved the kind of housing announcements for himself rather than giving them to Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves and the party is getting rid of local house building targets. It wants to empower local authorities. It wants to say that we need to build houses. Sometimes we do need to actually cut through what have been termed NIMBYs people who don't want housing built in their backyard. The situation is pretty bad. The current generation of 25 to 34 year olds are paying more for their housing, whether they're renting or They've got a mortgage and they're less likely to own a home than any generation since the 1920s. We have an average house price to earnings ratio in this country of something like nine. So you need nine times your annual income before tax on average to buy an average home. When I first bought a flat in the mid 1990s, that figure was more like three or four times. So we've got a really historically high house price to earnings ratio and that's why so many young people feel they just can't get on the housing ladder whether it's to rent or to buy there's a chronic shortage of homes that shortage is now very much a a mainstream issue it's becoming a major part of politics it's becoming kind of embroiled in the immigration debate as well when you have an increase in immigration as we had in 2022 equal in net terms to the population of the city of Leeds in a single year And you're only building 150,000 new homes, and the population of Leeds is more like 700,000, then clearly you've got a problem. So, Labour are to be congratulated, I think, for going big on housing at least with their rhetoric, we'll see what actually makes it into the party manifesto.
1: And and looking a little bit more at the detail, I mean, what have you been impressed by? And what have you not been impressed by in Labour's plans, Liam?
5: Well, I think it's bold of Labour to say that they want to get this house building done locally, even if people object. But that isn't really the way democracy should work. What we really need to do, as I've been arguing for many years, is we need to capture the what we call planning game. When agricultural land gets planning permission for housing, its value can go up not just two or three times, but 200 or 300 times, uh, even more in some localities. And that value that's created, at the moment, all of that goes either to the landowner or the land agent or the developer if the developer owns the land. I've argued in Home Truths that that planning game should be split 50-50, between the local authority and the landowner, and then the local authority can use that wealth, use that value, it can borrow against it to immediately build schools, hospitals, bypasses, doctor surgeries, to fund all the infrastructure that you need to make sense of new houses that are being built. And if that happens, Lara, then at the local level, there'll be real debates about whether or not we need this housing, because a lot of young families say, well, I quite fancy a new school, I quite fancy a new... Hospital. I quite fancy, you know, a, a holiday from council tax for a few years if that's what the local authority wants to use the planning game for. So that was what I proposed in Home Truths. But and Labour are going for some, they're sort of inching towards a version of that, but they want to go back to a pre-1961 situation, pre this vital 1961 Land Conversation Act legislation, where the whole of the planning uplift. Went to the state and the landowners didn't get any of the planning uplift and what that means is that you then have to rely on compulsory purchase orders a lot of legal wrangling a lot of people not wanting to put their land forward for housing and in my view a lawyer's bonanza and even less land available for housing so labour have adopted the idea that i've been putting forward for a number of years but i think they've gone for too draconian a version of it too ideological a version Of it, Rather than splitting the planning game 50-50, they want the whole of the planning game, which currently goes almost entirely to the private sector landowner at the moment, they want the whole of that planning game to go to the state. And I think that's too draconian, and I think it will lead to lots and lots and lots of lawsuits. And that law, if they bring that in, won't survive more than one parliament. Mm. Uh,
2: Then um, Keir Starmer has been dropping some hints that the sanctity of the green belt would have to be renewed. Do you think there's any chance Labour could meet its pledge of one and a half million new houses without reviewing the sanctity of the green belt?
5: Well, let's be clear. A lot of the green belt isn't green. A lot of the green belt is urban scrub of no aesthetic value whatsoever. Or a lot of the green belt is inaccessible, chemically doused farmland that does the public no good at all. And the green Belt's is completely separate from areas of outstanding natural beauty, national parks and all the rest of it. So while there is some aesthetic value in some of the green belt, no one who's serious about solving our housing crisis can say that the whole of the green belt is sacred. Look, it's just wrong, as Rishi Sunak keeps saying from the dispatch box, that we are concreting over the countryside. The green belt is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger all the time. It's now covered 13% of the landmass of England and housing covers less than 2%, including gardens. There's more golf courses in Surrey in terms of acreage than there are housing. And that's a very popular place to live, given that it's so close to the capital where there are so many jobs. So I think at least some of the green belt should be used for housing because it has no aesthetic value. And it's in places where people want to live because it's where work is. And the Greenbelt is actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's now 150% bigger by acreage. So more than double what it was in the late 1970s. And the numbers are in my book, Home Truths, which prove that assertion. But look, as well as Greenbelt, what Labour should be doing is, and I've written this in the Sunday Telegraph a, a few times lately, they should be harnessing state-owned land. The state owns 6% of all freehold land. A lot of it is in very developable areas, not least in urban centres. If the state made that land available and it was keenly priced and it was earmarked for local, small and medium-sized builders who would build out quickly and competitively into a high quality, then you could go a long way towards solving our housing crisis, even without touching the green belt. but Treasury dogma keeps stopping that state-owned land from being sold because there's always the proviso, oh, we could get a higher price at another time. But look, if that land is developed, you then get the local activity. You get the taxation from the housing. You get more people living in the area. You get more going on in the local economy. You have fewer homeless families. You pay less uh, housing benefit. The fiscal benefits of harnessing dead state-owned land for housing are absolutely massive and unanswerably true. And I'm astonished that the Labour Party hasn't gone for that. It's a much, much quicker way to demonstrate that you really care about housing. And it's a kind of statist policy because it uses state-owned land, but it's also a kind of private sector free market policy too because it's rolling back the frontiers of the state. It's a policy with a lot of appeal right across the political spectrum which is where Labour should be aiming.
1: And just finally, one of the reasons people obviously often object to new housing and find themselves then accused of nimbyism is because of the designs of the houses. Has Labour given any sense of how it's going to address the, the aesthetic aspects of planning?
5: Well, why are we building such horrible, tiny, boxy, samey houses, Lara? The reason we are is because the price of land takes up so much of the cost of what customers finally pay for their house these days. Because of the issues about land allocation that I just referred to earlier, if land was cheaper, if there was a better way of getting land into the hands of people who want to build out immediately, rather than into the hands of big companies, big oligopolistic house builders who build out slowly to contrive scarcity to keep prices artificially high, if we can get land reasonably priced into the hands of good local builders who want to build out quickly for cash flow, then There'll be more money left to actually build the house and the house will be uh, a bit bigger. It will be better quality. The number of houses that are built that don't actually pass building regs these days. It's unbelievable um, how many young couples buy new build homes and the snagging goes on for years and years and years. And we're not just talking about leaky sinks or doors that stick. We're talking about you know, walls that are twisted, we're talking about fire insulation that should be there by law that isn't there. We're talking about roofs that are structurally unsound. I've, I've talked to and filmed with many, many young people who have bought, frankly, and this is a technical term, really crappy new build homes. <clears throat> the quality has been very, very low. And everyone in the building industry knows this, but very few people want to admit it. I don't see Labour doing anything to address the fundamentally low quality of the homes that we're providing for our young people, the new build homes. So far, we've had some strong rhetoric. So far, we've had some decent political analysis that housing is clearly a problem right across various demographies that they need to address. But I don't see any really good, strong solutions. But as I said, I live in hope and I wait for that Labour manifesto.
2: Liam Halligan, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thanks, guys.
2: Before we get to our final segment, Lara, is there anything else from the magazine you want to uh, draw attention to?
1: I always love our Dear Mary column, um, written by Mary Killen, our in-house agony aunt. And she responds to a letter in this week's issue about whether it's acceptable to serve wine to guests during Lent if you yourself are observing Lent and not drinking and well, I know that you're not drinking at the moment that's right Lent, so what, what do you think of that oh my would gosh, you would you course, serve wine to of guests of course
2: you should serve wine to guests so I'm with Mary on this I think you, you have to be a good host and actually I think I'm a better host during Lent because I've become kind of an enabler of other people's drink I'm living vicariously through them do
1: you think you serve better wine to your guests during Lent
2: absolutely so uh not just wine so actually um Kate Andrews came to stay with me this weekend just passed, and I just kept making her very strong gin cocktails because I was determined that, that she was going to have at least that someone be, be having a good time while I was being miserable and sober. <laughs> uh, so I think Mary's quite right to say, no, no, I know it's a temptation to have wine around in the house when you're not drinking for Lent, but you've you've got to be a good host.
1: And finally, one thing that's been discussed a lot this week is whether children should be allowed smartphones. And the government has, has this week issued guidance for schools as t- on whether they should be cracking down on, on smartphones in schools. One person who does feel very strongly about this is Rod Liddle, who writes his column this week about why he completely agrees with the ban um, and has been campaigning for this for a while.
2: So Rod joins us now with Miranda Wilson, who's the co-founder of a campaign organisation called Tech which campaigns to keep children safe online. Uh, Rod, in your column this week, you call for schools to ban smartphones. It's an issue that you've uh, written about a, cup, a couple of times for us in the magazine. Why is it that you feel so strongly about this issue?
6: Well, the, the, the reason that I, I was particularly interested to get involved in this was I was worried about our shortening attention span for a long period of time. Uh, and I read the book, which I wrote about in The Spectator by Yoan Harry, uh, Stolen Focus. Uh, which came, of course, because Johan's on the far left, uh, which did indeed come from the far left, was about the way, the pernicious way in which the high-tech, the big-tech companies draw people in and keep them hooked, keep them clicking. And the, the the result, that I think the figures suggest that the Gen Zers have an attention span which is something like 40% less than the millennials uh, who, who preceded them, uh, which, is, which is a massive reduction. in in a very short space of time. So that was one, the second one was the inanity and horribleness of social media. It may be that I care about this slightly less than, for example, MIM, uh, but I still do care about it, but the effect that this has on kids. But what it isn't, people like Hugo Rifkin, for example, and Nigel Farage and other people suggest it is, is a wish to turn back the clock uh, and and to have us live in some uh, as as I think Hugo put it in a tweet to one of one of a member of our group, an oldie England. I mean, this that's just an absurdity, and it's a, it's a shallow way of thinking. This is an attempt to ensure that kids are not neglected anymore, because it's also been part of my thesis as as a as a social democrat. The, the one group of people who we have really let down in the last 40 to 50 years with successive bits of progressive legislation, which taken by themselves sometimes do do very good things. They nonetheless have a bad effect upon the kids and smartphones, I think, are another example of that.
1: Miranda, can you tell listeners a little bit about your organisation Teched Off and what the aims are of the organisation? And also, could you also let us know your thoughts on the, gu- the guidance that the government has this week issued to schools on smartphones?
7: Yes, absolutely. So I set up Teched Off a few years ago. I, I was reading in the papers about uh, rape culture in schools. I couldn't believe what I was reading. I became completely obsessed with with what was happening to our kids as a, re- as a result of Unfettered online access. Um, I started reading, you know, academic papers, Ofsted reports, books, and I thought, okay, I've got to compile all this information and um, share it with other parents. So that was that was my starting point. Um one thing I think that hasn't been discussed, and and I, and I think further to Rod's point is the social mobility element. So There was a poll by the Social Mobility Commission in 2020 that found that social mobility is in decline in Britain. Five hours a day on on social media certainly can't be helping with kids' educational outcomes. And, I mean, I'd even argue that the long-term effects on social mobility are still to emerge. Uh,
1: Perhaps, can I I ask you both? I mean, obviously, it's a very sensible idea to take smartphones away from children, but children obviously learn... By what they see and experience, and probably both their parents will have smartphones. So, do you do you think that adults also need to try and detach themselves from their smartphones in order to prove to their children that it can be done? Rod, what do you think?
6: Yes, absolutely, vitally. I mean, I'm I'm slightly fortunate in being older, and therefore, while I do have a smartphone, it doesn't have the allure. Uh, that it would do for someone who is substantially younger than me, such as my wife, for example, who who weans herself off social media every so often because of the inanity of it. And what it is, of course, is the it's the appeal of the of of the easy of the non-taxing. So that if you have a book, uh, and this is what I wrote about when I was writing about uh, Yohan Harry's book, that if you have a book next to you and you think, yeah, well, I should read that now. Uh, but then you somehow get caught up in bubble shooter. It's a very pressing need to exterminate these different coloured bubbles. And it takes no thought, you know, uh, and and almost everything on social media takes very, very little thought, even down to stuff. And we journos, um, you know, uh, are are as guilty of this as any. It has never been easier to do journalism because all you have to do is Google Wikipedia, you know, uh, And people who trust Wikipedia, I would say, are actually deranged because, of course, it's not true and there's no depth to it. And that's the thing about the internet. It has no no great depth, uh, but it has an infinite breadth. Uh, Just just one thing on on what Mim was saying, and I agree with that, and I agree entirely about social mobility. It, It does broaden it a little bit, though, because... I believe that almost all of the progressive legislation which we've introduced, largely for the benefits of the middle class, so divorce law reform, for example, has militated against uh, greater social mobility. Uh, I I know, for example, that the Divorce Reform Act has absolutely, it, it has hammered the working class. Uh, you know, I stood outside a job centre in Middlesbrough about, about 10 years ago now and and uh, polled everyone who was coming out and everybody in there had come from a broken relationship, was the offspring of a broken relationship and 80% had started a broken relationship of their own and it had financially ruined them. You know, they, they couldn't move to find work, they had to pay maintenance, The woman, woman couldn't go to work. All of this stuff has has, has really harmed Um, the desire which we all would want, I would hope, which is for a more equitable society. And there's plenty more to throw in on that as well, but it's getting off the point, I know.
2: Miranda, I wonder, have you had much pushback from parents who actually want their children to have smartphones because they do exist don't they the, the parents who say i need to be able to contact my child to check in with them make sure that they're all right uh, we all know that 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 you the parents who want to take smartphones from their children they'll get pushed back from the kids saying you know i i can't socialize that my phone but do you actually have parents who are against what
7: you're trying to do well interesting question i mean i it- Everyone that, I've, that I have spoken to has said, oh, my God, I wish we'd never let our kids have these devices. Um, it, it's quite hard. to I found it's quite hard to have these conversations with fellow parents because it's a bit like sort of asking them to open their underwear drawer. You know what goes on in your house? And, you know, does your child have their phone in their bedroom or like how are you dealing with it? And what and, and what's you know, what dramas are you having with your children when you try try and take the device away, which I, I would say. Every parent, you know, who has a child with a, either an iPad or a smartphone will have experienced those dramas. I've seen more in the media, actually, with people saying, oh, God, well, my, my child needs to you know, contact me. And I, I'm afraid I think that's a nonsense argument because you can get devices that make phone calls and send texts that aren't online.
6: Sorry, it's, ne- it's but- negligence on the part of the parents, you know, uh, and I think we have been negligent as parents over the last... 40 to 50 years. We're, we're more interested in our own convenience. And there is no question whatsoever that smartphones are a convenient way of keeping a child occupied. But at the same time, I I I see when I when I saw it with my own kids, once they were older, and they were I left it very late before they got smartphones and stuff. But it was it reminded me of me and cigarettes, that the compulsion to go onto that phone was even oh. more addictive than nicotine i might be in the middle of a of a obviously because it's me very interesting sentence which i was speaking to my son and i'd see him suddenly scrolling through looking at something something on snapchat is gonna or real time or one of these and it, it it it's addictive qualities are enormous and that's where i think yo and harry got it right and where where we might engage the left a little bit more and there were a number of canards as well Lara you know uh, which you hear all the time well people said the same thing when we got radio and when we got television well they did say the same thing then and to a certain extent they were right but of course television you know and I was brought up on play school and I think Jack Jackanory came out when I was about eight it was about thirty minutes a day. You know? it was thirty? It wasn't eight hours a day? Ditto radio. So there is no comparison between the addictive qualities of TV and radio and what they get from smartphones. Just no, no, no correlation whatsoever. Just very finally, then I would love to know your both from both of you
2: your opinion on when it's all right then to to give your child a phone. What's the right age roughly? Do you think actually? You're out of the danger zone when it comes to development. When it comes to shortening attention span, when should they get a smartphone for the first time?
6: Well, I, I, it's it's 18, I suspect, uh, and I, I I think there's I think we're, we're in a very complicated picture uh, with understanding what children want, what children need, and how children develop. We know from from biology that. That, that a child's brain is still developing all the way up to the age of 25. I think that has various connotations.
7: In an ideal world, I would also say 18. What I'm saying on my website is 16, which at least gives children the chance to develop a concentration span and a sense of self. Very confusing, having half your, half your life, you know, as a kind of avatar of yourself online and half in real life. It's too much for them, I'd say. I'd also actually, I think if I think if people are uh, not sure, if parents are not sure about this, then I would actually urge them to go onto TikTok and have a look at Snapchat spotlight, which is the short form video feed, and and take a look at what their children are, are looking at. It is at a worst deviant and at best, absolute dross i mean if i you know i'd like to finish on a positive note with this actually which is that you know we have a we have a rich cultural tradition in this country uh that, that children have enjoyed for decades and they'll be a, it will still be there to you know entertain them at the other side of this madness as will their friends their hobbies you know time outdoors spells of boredom that will ignite their imaginations um i i, I i'm really positive about this and i think it's totally achievable but you know Banning social media and smartphones until 16 is going to be a huge step in the right direction. And I think I think the adults are back in the room. So, yeah, I'm optimistic.
2: Rod, and Miranda, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Lara, do you let your children use smartphones? Um, Probably a bit young, aren't they?
1: Well, I mean, obviously my children are around smartphones because my husband and I obviously use our phones all the time. We've tried quite hard to keep them quite separate um, and to sort of talk about them as as something that we use just for work, really. They don't, they don't watch things on our phones. Um, I, I sort of feel grateful, actually, that all of this discussion about smartphones is going on now, really, because I feel like by the time I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, I feel like by the time they get to the age where they're going to be saying, mummy, please can I have a smartphone? Uh, mm. Like at that point, hopefully there'll be a bit more of a sort of structure in place for how you're meant to respond because I think I, I the sense I get from parents right now dealing with this is like it's it's the complete wild west and no one really quite knows what, what they should be saying. And particularly, and I think there's an, it's interesting this movement, parents coming together, trying to stop their collective groups of children having phones because obviously so much of it is down to peer pressure. So I'm hoping that that will have kind of laid the groundwork for what comes next. But, Will, what about you? you Yeah, I agree
2: agree with you. And I think it's something that the the spectators always... uh, been ahead of as with so many things we had this excellent piece by Sophie Winkleman the actress Sophie Winkleman uh, which is our lead feature in the uh, Last Spectator school supplement all about banning smartphones from from schools where they should be banned and I'm afraid I think I probably do agree I think um, especially when we're talking about children of that age I mean our children are a bit young to be hooked on these things at the moment but it is coming as the second it's the, the second the first the first child in class gets a smartphone i mean that's it then then you know the the, the dam is broken, isn't it? Mm. And then everyone sort of ha- has the the pressure on parents to get one after that. All parents, I think, must be immense.
1: Um, and we've just actually just been joined by our editor, Fraser Nelson. Fraser, that was some stat you were referring to earlier about smartphones.
8: Quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, I gave to my kids. My son wrote me this um, persuasive letter asking that he needs it for self-reliance, etc. Um, and I really underestimated just how it just takes you down a rabbit hole, how parents think they can control it, but they can't. I later found out that two-thirds of ten-year-olds have got mobile phones. Two-thirds. Um. <laughs> and that's ten-year-olds. And, of course, there comes a point now where it does become difficult for parents to, to say no. But then Catherine Burblesing will point out that in her school, Michaela Free School, the best, the kids in the smartest sets don't have mobile phone but don't use them and the kids who are struggling almost all do so she sees a definite link between the, the, the behavioral habits of of kids and I think it I think my own hunch is in 10 years time we're going to understand a lot more about the links between phone usage that neurological development and pace of learning right now the studies are um, vague and old and not particularly good but I do think that probably by the time your children become, Will and and um, become sort of thirteen-year-olds. You'll be a lot better warned about the the dangers of giving them the digital. That's, that's exactly what we were just saying. That's, we're kind of grateful said, that all yeah.
1: of this is being done now. So that we yeah. Yeah. yeah, And exactly. it's actually, this?
8: i would say—it's my biggest single regret in parenting that I underestimated this. Oh well. Wow. So you have, have you given your children phones? Do they have them? Yeah, they do. And um, you know, the with the younger ones, you can more or less work it out in screen time, limit the number of apps, etc. But then you find out there's ways around it. And what is just depressing is that you really, there's nothing, books is the way to expand minds and there's no substitute for it. And if you allow them to have a substitute, they'll they'll take it. I blame myself, I, I, I used to think, well, this is like TV, my parents told me I'd never, you know, my mind was being addled by television, this is just an old person's, yeah. um, but I then subsequently found out that, you know, that amongst my kids' peers, the highest performing kids, I've been given this r- rigorous kind of um, no-phone um, regime by the parents who are prepared to be hated as a result, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's a tough life.
2: Oh, thanks for dropping by. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We are in
1: your office, <laughs> after all. <so. laughs> thank you. Um, and that's everything this week, as ever. We we invite you to let us know what you what you think of this podcast. We've had
2: unless had- you didn't enjoy it. In which case, <laughs> in which we- case we don't want to hear yeah. from you.
1: No, no, we want to have all, all feedback, please. And we've we've had a few few letters, which is so very nice. Been ones. heartening, hasn't it? Will? So so yes, please do keep them coming. Yeah, send
2: um, to podcast at spectator.co.uk If there's anything you'd like to say about how we're doing.
1: Um, and yeah if you pick up the magazine you'll be able to read everything we've talked about and plenty more I'm Laura Rendergast and I'm
2: William Moore and we hope you'll join us again next week